0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Shelley Stoneman, Senior Vice President for Government Relations at BAE Systems. I got to know Shelley when we worked together in the White House, and we worked really closely together. We were both on the House team in the Office of Legislative Affairs, so we had the same job. We were just assigned different members of Congress and different committees to cover. You know those people who you spend a crazy amount of time with at work and sweat all the stressful moments with and get to enjoy all the highs and endure all the lows with? Shelley is one of those people for me. Today, Shelley is responsible for all legislative affairs and government relations for BAE Systems, which employs more than 34,000 employees in the U.S., U.K., and Sweden. If you're not familiar with BAE Systems, it's a defense, aerospace, and security company that delivers a wide range of products and services for air, land, and naval forces. Shelley comes to her current role naturally. She has been and remains one of the leading people in national security. She started her career working for a Senate committee. Then she went overseas, where she worked on conflict resolution in the Balkans and researching small arms traffic. When she returned to Washington, she joined the staff of Congressman Steve Rothman, who was just joining the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. During her time at the White House, Shelley was assigned the House Armed Services Committee and the Defense Appropriations Committee, and therefore worked really closely with the White House National Security Council, the Department of Defense, and Congress on a variety of national security issues, including the defense budget. One of her signature accomplishments is helping devise the legislative strategy that led to repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And as you'll hear, we talk about that. After her time at the White House, Shelley went to the Department of Defense, where she was the White House liaison and special assistant to the secretary for three defense secretaries, Robert Gates, Leon Panetta, and Chuck Hagel. Even today, Shelley continues her public service. In 2022, she was appointed by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to serve as chair of DOD's Advisory Committee on Women in the Services, a committee composed of civilian women and men to provide advice and recommendations on matters and policies relating to the recruitment, retention, employment, integration, well-being, and treatment of women in the armed forces. She is also chair of the board of directors for the Leadership Council of Women in National Security an organization of women and allies from across the political spectrum working to advance gender inclusion at the highest levels of the U.S. national security and foreign policy workforce. Shelly and I recorded this episode on Friday, March 10th. I hope you enjoy it. Shelly Stoneman, welcome to Staffer.
1: Thank you so much, Jim Papa. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I am elated to have you on. Um, We're going to get into all sorts of different stuff. Um, as you know, I like to start with my with my guests at the very beginning. Um, I like to hear about where they grew up and what family life was like. So please tell me about that, uh, if you would.
1: So I was actually born in San Diego, California, but I ended up moving to Florida with my mom when I was about seven years old. And so I spent most of my formative years up through high school uh, in Orlando, Florida. My grandparents had retired there, and they provided a lot of support to us as I grew up. And... My mom was an accountant and, you know, kind of, again, very much single mother and, uh, you know, really was good to have just that family circle around us out there.
0: So I got to know you when we were staffers together at the White House, and we're going to talk about your career in in government and in national security. Um but you mentioned Orlando, and I believe I remember from your background that there was a little bit of razzle-dazzle, uh, a little bit of showbiz in your childhood. So could you talk to us what that was and perhaps the career that might have been?
1: Oh. oh, dear. Oh, goodness. <laughs> um. True. So Orlando, when I was there, had started kind of coming up on the showbiz side with both the, you know, MGM, Disney, Mickey Mouse Club being filmed there. And then Universal Studios actually opened directly across the street from my high school. Like you could wow. walk from one to the other. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity. I definitely was a drama kid at times. And so kind of got into a little bit of acting, um, May or may not have actually been on a Nickelodeon show as a regular extra. Um, So, you know, definitely got to enjoy a bit of that life, but never got too deep into it.
0: Uh, What a cool opportunity Um, in terms of like, you know, just a way to experience something and have a great memory without having it, you know, consume you. Um,
1: Although here's my one celebrity fun fact. The person who starred on that show at the time and was before he was Mr. Gorgeous and, you know, globally famous was Ryan Reynolds. So I actually got to do a scene with Ryan Reynolds when he was like short and kind of chubby and was just like a lovely guy. So.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's cool. I love it. Well, you have had um, the opportunity to meet a lot of, of very famous people in your career, um, but before we get to some of those from the political realm, you went to school at Vassar. And as I said, your career has been in national security, as I've observed, you know, your career. Where did you meet that set of issues? Where did you become interested in in foreign affairs and national security?
1: So it, it, it was a little bit of a two-step process. So I think for those who knew me in high school Pretty much to a person, they would agree. I was very focused on becoming a lawyer, you know, a prosecutor and then a judge and a justice. I mean, that is, it's funny, when I, when I go back, that's what people remember very vividly about me in high school. And so at that point, I was doing this program called Youth in Government, sponsored by the YMCA. And it afforded me a couple opportunities, you know, one to play a prosecutor in a mock um, mock court process, and then later to come back and be a Florida Supreme Court justice. And so kind of got bit with, uh, I want to, you know, do public service uh, before I went to college. But when I went to school, moved, you know, right into studying political science and had to kind of figure out exactly what I wanted to do with it. Was definitely drawn to defense and national security issues, but didn't know that would be a career until I took a model UN class at, I think it was my junior, sophomore or junior year. And it was such a fantastic opportunity. And, and coincidentally enough, that year, Vassar was the United States. I mean, what are the odds of that? You know, we could have been a, a very small you know, country um, that just was a participant, but in some ways coming in, and I, I happened to be the member of the Arms Control and Disarmament Committee. It was insane to me how pivotal the US voice was on all of these important issues. Everyone wanted to know where we stood what we thought, me bringing people along and convincing them to come over to our position. It was the most intoxicating experience. And so after that, I was I was just done. I knew I wanted to, to work in government and ideally work on these issues.
0: Oh, I love that. Um, so after college, you came directly to Washington. Is that right? Like, how did you make it from college to Capitol Hill?
1: So I actually was a White House intern first. So in college, I did I did Washington semester at American University, and I did it twice. So I kind of lived out both of my, you know, my sliding doors lives. You know, the first one, I, I interned for a D.C. Superior Court judge, Ann Carey, uh, who ironically later married my husband and I, which is pretty cool. Um, and then the second one, and I still to this day, I'm, I'm honestly kind of shocked, but I got a letter saying I was selected for the White House internship. And for me, I mean, I, I, I'm i nobody. Like, I had no backing. I had no, you know, no um, knowledge of anyone who could have helped me get into that program. So I was really shocked that I was selected. And then I said, okay, well, I have to go and do it. Although, a- alternately, where uh, Judge Kerry had been trying to help place me was as an intern with U.S. Attorney Eric Holder. <laughs> so wow. again, the, the two paths of life are, are just very funny when you, when you put it in those terms. And so yeah. I felt like, oh, I'm really giving up something, but I, I need to go see if this works. And then when I came to the internship program, they actually placed me in White House Lodge Affairs. So I was an intern in our later office, 12 years Amazing. prior, exactly.
0: That is incredible.
1: I mean, like, look, I, I,
0: you and I know that office so well it is unique in the White House because you really do have a foot in two branches of government, you know? You bet. Um So what did you take from that experience about Capitol Hill?
1: So again, it kind of was this like beautiful um, moment where going in there, really interested in these kind of nerdy, you know, issues of arms control, disarmament. And there was a, a guy working there who was then the deputy assistant secretary to the president, deputy assistant to the president um, for White House Ledge Affairs, Al Molden. And he was, he kind of ran all the banking issues and foreign relations issues. And just the kindest man listened to what I was interested in and kind of grabbed me up into everything he was working on, completely took me under his wing. And, you know, in Ledger affairs, as you know, you kind of get a taste of everything. You, you don't just do one set of issues, no matter how specialized you are. You're, you're kind of spread around to everything. So everything from, you know, doing invitations to members of Congress, to help setting up events, to staffing things, and then you know, working on, I think I did summaries of all the activity on uh, on the Hill that I'd like have to kind of send up. It's um, not quite the night note, but similar to it, kind of the weekly wrap-up. And it was just, it was so interesting to me. And so Al was a really pivotal part for when I later came back to Capitol Hill after graduating. He had opened a lot of doors for me, gave me, set me up with a lot of informational interviews. And one of those very interviews actually led to my first job.
0: And- so i think you mentioned it was on a senate committee so for whom were you working in your first job on capitol hill
1: sure so uh one of the informational interviews had been with a guy named rick kessler uh who worked for howard berman when he was on the uh foreign uh the international relations committee on the house side and that was his job then and we just did a nice informational interview and I'd keep in touch with him and circle back you know like a good like a good job seeking person on the hill and I happened to contact him months and months later when I was really feeling down like I wasn't going to be able to find a job and I happened to contact him on the day that he had just been made staff director on the governmental affairs committee's subcommittee on international security and proliferation and he told me, I have one job to fill and you should come over tomorrow and we'll talk about it. It was it was like just the most amazing sequence of events. Very, very much like a D.C. moment.
0: Yes. Well, I, I love two things. One, that that moment was made possible by a lot of things that preceded it. You know, a lot of 100%. small steps and chiseling and chiseling and chiseling. But also that you, it was still a little bit of luck. Which, you know, almost everyone I talk with, it's both of those things. It's stick It's, you know, right, and dedication yes. and a little bit of luck.
1: It, it was. And it, it just felt, it, I still remember that moment. I can feel exactly where I was sitting because it felt so magical. And I couldn't believe my luck that, I mean, it was like walking in. And it was. It was my dream job. There's, there's no other job that would have been better than that job. Uh, now,
0: OK, so you had a really cool experience that followed this job. But tell me, what was that first job? Like, what were you doing in that role for your first experience on Capitol Hill?
1: So, you know, with with the the Senate divisions of the majority and minority always comes a slightly slimmer staff uh, on the on the minority side. And so while Rick was staff director, we had one deputy staff director and then I was the one staff assistant. And so I was kind of everything in between. So I definitely did my share of picking up mail and answering the phone and, you know, stapling things and making photocopies. But Rick was truly, and I I still feel this um, sincerely, that he was one of the best bosses ever because he gave me so many opportunities to write statements for the senator, to write memos and do hearing prep. And then the best thing of all, which I've never forgotten and I still try to do to this day, is because he was him and he had this massive network across Washington of all the national security think tanks and organizations, he'd get a million invitations. And he would send me to them when he couldn't go under his stature. And I would be seated at these tables where not only am I the only woman in the room, but I'm the youngest person in the room by a factor of like 20 years. One time I was seated next to Zbigniew Brzezinski, and I'm certain he thought I was there to get him coffee and was shocked to find out I was actually seated next to him. I mean, that is an amazing boss. Like, that is is just emblematic of what being a good leader is.
0: Oh, I love that. That is incredible. Um, So it must have been hard to leave that job. Um, Now fortunately, that that your next experience took you to Europe, which has some uh, attraction. And it, as I understand it, too, you were just engaged in really meaningful work first as a conflict resolution advisor for the UNICEF-sponsored NGO Balkan Sunflowers in Kosovo, and then later doing research on small arms in Geneva. So you had a great job, and you also went to an incredible opportunity. What caused you to make that transition?
1: So one of the experiences that we skipped over uh, in my college experience was actually meeting the love of my life, uh, who happened to be about to go into the military. I went to Vassar, he went to West Point. We met my sophomore year. And shortly after um, he was commissioned uh, in 99, he had to go through a series of officer training camps down at Fort Benning. We got married about a year later, um, as you kind of need to do in the military if you're gonna be living under the same roof. And off we moved to Germany uh, in the middle of, actually, the end of 2001. And so we were; he was there for three year. um, We'd be stationed there for three years. And the uh, the challenge of that was that once we got there, he would be gone for training or deployment more than half of the time. So great to be in Germany, but not a lot going on. um, You know, given that I've just given up my dream job, and so had to, you know, kind of be very creative and think about how was I gonna fill the time? How do I progress my career? And not just, you know I wanna travel, but not just travel. How do I continue to make a contribution? And so a couple of things happened. I was able to enroll in a graduate school program through the University of Oklahoma. They have a program in Europe. And so I did a lot of my studies um, going to different bases around Europe and they'd have in-person kind of for the, the final week of the course. And so got through my master's degree in international relations, and through that ended up meeting um, one of my professors who took me on as a graduate research assistant. Her work was all about small arms trafficking in Europe, Central Europe, Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans. And so she just, again, was like a, you know a, a magic moment, gave me the opportunity to travel with her to 13 different countries and write about small arms trafficking, kind of policies and processes in all of those countries and make recommendations. And some of that led on to follow on work, um, doing a lot more work kind of in specific countries in the Balkans, um, doing some things with the United Nations Development Program, and, a, and a, um, also another group, Small Arms Survey, that's located in Geneva.
0: Wow. You know, you you have a second master's degree. Is, is that right? From the U.S. Yeah. War College? Talk to me about, the, you know, the importance of obtaining those advanced degrees to your career? Because a lot of folks don't um, pursue master's degree or are really on the fence about whether it's going to be additive to their careers. How would you, you know, what, what advice do you give to people?
1: Yeah, I, that's, I think that's such a good question because you're right. I think it depends on the person and it depends on the degree. For me at that point, really being, you know, kind of a, a junkie uh, on national security and global security issues it was it was a a well worth you know a worthy endeavor um, to be able to kind of commit that time in reading and get the foundation of international relations studies under me, which I could only kind of t- taste that a little bit in college. Um, the the one that I did later ended up, and I know we'll, we'll we'll get to this, but when I returned to Capitol Hill, it actually was a program with the the U.S. Naval War College that you could do on the Hill, and that was. Amazing for a whole variety of reasons, but it was so timely because I ended up being able to do that right as my then boss was embarking on this new journey into the defense appropriations world. And so that program... Um, the National security studies program is is very tied to that process and as well as we 're fighting and we 're gaming and and you know the tenants of that too, but uh, both of those were very complementary to my career, and I would recommend it certainly to anyone the where I start to question is when I feel like a lot of programs in in perhaps in d c and maybe elsewhere they 've ended up marketing these programs of like public administration and, you know, other other you know, government relations kind of programs. and I don't I just don't know that those are worth the value of the time and money spent when, in fact, as a practitioner, you can learn as a staffer, you can learn so much more firsthand.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, well, let, let's jump to that boss uh, that sure. you just referenced. That was Congressman Steve Rothman of New yes. Jersey. How did you find yourself working for him? And was it sort of intentional to, you know, go to a member who was embarking, who was on the Appropriations Committee and now was embarking on that very critical subcommittee?
1: So, yes, I mean, it was, again, it was kind of like trying to recapture the magic of Capitol Hill. You know, we moved back from Germany in the fall of 2003 And suddenly I'm trying to reconnect with, you know, friends and neighbors alike who I once knew and find out any job on the Hill. And so this happened to be one of the jobs that popped and it had a national security foreign policy flavor to it. Steve at that time, um, you know, Steve represented Northern New Jersey, but was very much an international relations, you know, kind of junkie himself. And so he was on the the, um, State and Foreign Operations Appropriations Subcommittee. So that was actually what I was hired for. I was hired for that role. And jumped into it, absolutely loved it, and then got to be there, and I think in about two-ish, two or three years' time when um, he was then given the opportunity to get on to Defense Appropriations, the most coveted committee on the Appropriations Committee. And so helping him with his own journey, and he would would admit he is not a defense person by trade, so being able to kind of offer that to him was just amazing. It was a great journey.
0: So... um I, I I knew Steve Rothman a little bit when he was a member of Congress. You actually, obviously got to work with him so closely. And we all learn a lot uh, by working closely with the principals who were staffing. So tell me, what did you learn about being a staffer from Steve Rothman?
1: Oh, so much. Yes. Yeah, Steve... I think all members are quirky, right? I think we can agree on that. All members are quirky. Steve was was that, but also, I mean, he could be a really great boss in so many ways. I mean, a couple things. One, you know, he's from New Jersey. And as you know, having worked for New Jersey member, that is a, a rough and tumble climate, a political climate. And so you always are kind of looking for what's the right thing to do? What's the, you know, what's the thing that is, um, important for your constituents, and then also kind of important to chart your course. And so th- the best thing about Steve is that his sense of integrity was so high that while I, I was always aware of the um, areas of peril, I felt like working for someone like that, I didn't have to be too alert to that because he, his, his, he had a good North Star guiding him. Um, the second thing is that he is an editor, and he loved the red pen. <laughs> and we over the five years I worked for him, me and many others, anyone who ever wrote anything to him would battle. We would just battle to the death over commas and periods <laughs> and phrases. And it, so for, for better or worse, I look back on those times very fondly. And I did learn a lot from him. I mean, my, my other quote from Steve that I always think of is that he would always say, you know, Shelly, you have two choices. You can do something or you can do nothing. Do something, do nothing. And he'd all you know, like he he would say that to his kids too. And I I, I just love that. And I just thought here's someone who's here for the right reasons.
0: Yes. Yeah, I do love that. And also the, you know, the nudge to like, okay, figuring out something, even if it's, you know, not perfect, even if it's suboptimal, something is Almost always better than nothing. Yeah,
1: there's a way we can help. Yeah. Um, okay, I
0: know it, this must have been very difficult uh, for him. But you, when President Obama is elected, you uh, join the the White House Office of Legislative Affairs, back where you interned uh, early in 2009. Um, and I know he was supportive of that endeavor, uh, even though it, I'm sure, hurt him to say goodbye to you. My One of the things that you know, when people ask me about my experience in that office, something I, I reflect upon is that you and I had the exact same job title and, and the same job description, as did the, you know, the three other people with the special assistant title on the House team and then five others on the Senate team. But we all did that job a little differently. So tell me about your approach to that job and something that you, know, you think you did well and helped you succeed at that job.
1: That is a very astute observation, because while we all were a very tight team, we, my goodness, could not have had more different styles. And, and I think the, the best thing is that we actually learn from each other. I mean, I I, I, I mean know. that sincerely. I know yeah. I learned from you. I watched Same. you with members. And, I, you know, because I'd handled only really one member before, I had to understand the juggling multiple members and how to get better at that. So I think, you know, the thing that that I still emphasize is, is an important thing for staffers to do is just am- anticipate what's coming, anticipate outcomes and preparing. So in my world, because I had the national security portfolio, you know, a lot of bad news, a lot of bad news come came my way, um, yes. everything from Guantanamo detainees to terrorism attacks, you know, and while you can't anticipate, obviously, you know, the, the worst news understanding what the plan is and the the people to talk to the the mechanisms to communicate and then whether it's getting a statement out or getting a meeting pulled together or briefing just getting very good at anticipating how to do that stuff in an agile way i think was something that i figured out how to do pretty early on
0: yep yeah i would definitely say that um, is true about you, is, is good advice for everyone. I'm going to brag on you for a minute just as an observation of something, you know, as we all learn from one another. Um, I, I remember specifically um, there was a time when we were about to go up to the Hill and have to, you know, secure votes for um, either in Iraq or Afghanistan or maybe a combination supplemental, which at that time was very controversial within the, the Democratic caucus. And as is typical, after our morning meeting at like 6.45 or 7 o'clock, we go back to our desks and there is like a four-page summary of what's in the supplemental request. And all of us, you know, are reading that that four-page supplemental and we're, you know, we're ready to go up um, to persuade and answer questions based on that memo. And someone, one of the five of us, asked a question about kind of a small random thing that they knew one member was going to ask them about. And it wasn't in the four pager. And so they they just kind of asked and everyone, you know, certainly I was like, well, I, I have no idea. And you were like, oh, I know that it's, you know, and like you knew the page number. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, she's read the actual supplemental and it really captures you like, you know, your stuff and there is no substitute for that. You know, obviously everyone is doing their best as a staff member to know as much as they can. But your capacity for onboarding information has always really impressed me and was like top of class in a group of people who were operating, you know, at at, at as high levels they could get.
1: Wow. that That is a really nice compliment. Thank you. And that actually means a lot because... You know i I, I also know I know I got some good natured ribbing about you know th- there's a the compliment of it also, oh my God, you read the supplemental <laughs> exactly.
0: those were <laughs> our, <laughs> our insecurities coming out. Those are insecurities coming out, Shelly. um so okay, so let me ask a, a, another question um related to your time at the White House. you know you'd you'd been on Capitol, Hill, you'd been on the Senate side, you have been on the House side, and yet, being in the White House a- allows you to see the institution of Congress from a different vantage point. And I know I learned some things. Is there anything that like you reflect on that you learned by observing the house operate from down the street at um, Pennsylvania Avenue?
1: Yeah. I mean, it it was such, it's such a different perspective and, and having, you know, later, and I won't get ahead of us, but, you know, move to an agency. It's each vantage point is so different, you know, The old adage, like you sit where you sit, where you stand, you know, comes to mind because it's so important to remember your own equities and not be respectful of, but not being co-opted by your former equities. Mm -hmm. And so understanding what's important to them, but not, you know, giving up your own, um, just, you know, your own values as as a White House representative, so I think, you know, there, that's one, that's kind of a more profound one. The other one, and I, again, I feel like it's something you were much better at, as well as, as our boss, Dan Turton, was much better at. But I recalled going from one, where you work for one member, and you may call that member by their first name, but pretty much every other member, you're calling them by their title and with a you know high degree of respect and deference. And then I remember we got to our office and, you know, they, he, Dan was like, no. You got to call them by their first name, and he was like, like mandated that, and it. Oh, that was so uncomfortable. I know. It, it was so yep. uncomfortable, and I think I was able to do it for everyone, barring like Chairman Ike Skelton, who will always be Mr. Chairman. I was like, I'm not calling that man Ike. Yes. It's not happening.
0: That's right. Yeah, it was absolutely hard. Certain members, you'd still call them by their honorific. Um, the other thing i remember that was like the the corollary to that rule was if there's a group of members talking let's say there's four talking in a circle you staffer or special assistant i want you to step into that circle and become yeah. the fifth person as a part of that conversation yeah. which That's right. which absolutely strains against every staffer bone in our bodies right <laughs> because so we crap. are we are trained to stand a couple feet back like sort of within a shot if you can but you you're not in that circle and such a good point right and then with somebody, so you, you do it all of a sudden you're like oh my god what's oh going on god. and pretty yeah. soon they're just like they're talking to you like you know like you you belonged that it just
1: yeah.
0: it was getting over the hurdle um Anyway,
1: and would you would you agree? I, I feel like you asked this on another program of of like, when did you start making that pivot from staffer to principal? And that that was I mean, that was the, definitely the beginning for me. I certainly played other roles as a staffer after that. But that was a big change, like a digital moment in my life where I had to make that change that was very uncomfortable. But I mean, now it's like I wouldn't even think twice about it.
0: Yeah, right. So uh, another part of that job and then I want to move on to uh, your time yeah. uh, at DoD, but uh, we've been talking about the sort of the part of of being in ledge affairs that is external facing, meaning you're you are the president's representative on Capitol Hill. But there's also an internal facing half of the job where you're representing Congress to the White House.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. And so talk to us about you sort of describe that portion of the job and, um, you know, what demands it placed on you and and, and what you took from it.
1: So I continue to stand by the, this comment, which is that um, everyone thinks they're a government relations or government affairs expert. <laughs> so when you actually have the title and the official experience, your job is to leaven uh, the many thoughts and pieces of advice and strategic you know, direction given with actual sensibility and experience and knowledge. And so you're right. You're, you're bringing what Congress's you know priorities are and you're under you're helping to steer them away from doing something that would be very poorly received and also give them advice on if there's a better way to do it and bring people along with you based on again you know kind of practitioner knowledge and you know I think it's a mix of really having some good wins with some ideas of thinking about hey this is how we can do this i mean a big one for me was getting don't ask don't tell repeal passed like that is, is a special moment and journey that I will just absolutely cherish for the rest of my life. I feel so privileged to have been a part of that fight. And being able to help them think about how we got that very difficult piece of legislation through the, you know, the tiny needle hole of success was was wonderful to be a part of that. Having I mean, said that, my other portfolio was Guantanamo closure. And so, you know, felt like often being the skunk at the Garden Party as having to keep them up to speed on, you know, where Congress was blocking our efforts. So it's a little it's, it's all of the above.
0: So let me go back to Don't Ask Don't Tell. Um, people often ask me, like, what was my favorite moment of being in the White House? And there are so many. And obviously, passage of healthcare was President Obama's signature accomplishment. However, at least my second favorite moment was at the ceremony where the president signed the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And we're in a big auditorium. And I think this is at the Department of Interior, uh, which Mm -hmm, has a big auditorium, right? And to set the scene for folks, as you might imagine, I mean, it is filled with people from the military community, um, from the LGBTQ community, um, political stakeholders, and the energy is so positive. And then we sing the national anthem. And that moment of the entire room singing the national anthem with such pride, it was emotional. Um, And that is such a memory for me. And I think a key part of the story that isn't really known is your involvement in that story, because there had been conclusions by political professionals and observers that it just was dead. Yep. Um, but I know two people who helped solve it. You and Chris Kang, our <laughs> Senate, you know, one of our Senate counterparts in, in legislative affairs, figured out how to get through that that keyhole that you just described. So can you just describe for us that night when you guys reached, like, the conclusion and found the plan?
1: It. I mean, I think it was, you know, a year and a half of slog. And, and you're right. I think, you know, the, the atmosphere of being just truly doubted by all the external advocacy groups and the belief that we, we couldn't do it, we weren't going to do it, we had given it up. And, it, and certainly Chris and I were not alone because we had our counterpart. This is one that was absolutely a joint effort with staffers on the Hill who were, were also, you know, poised to, to position this for success. And so my two battle buddies on that one were Mariah Sixkiller, who worked for Leader Hoyer, and Paul Arcangeli, who worked for Chairman Skelton. And, yes. the thir- you know, and, and, and again, worked for Chairman Skelton, who was not supportive of it. So, it, it, you know, it, it, was, it took very esoteric leg- procedural knowledge of how to get this done and in what sequence and in what time. And we're also coordinating with DOD in order to get the requisite approval and pageantry of the whole process. And so that night, I think, you know, while it had been passed, and, and I think when it passed on the floor was almost the, the, the emotional breaking moment for me. I mean, just crying, tears, you know, just a disbelief that we actually got there. And so the the moment of signature and to see many attendees who were personally impacted by it and were, were now able to actually come out at that moment in the room, you know, like and and have an unfettered future serving in the armed forces, was just overwhelming. It was so such an amazing moment. And then also, I mean, the emotional part of it was that some of the members who had lost the race in 2010, this right. was weeks later. So that had an additional bittersweet layer to it. And so, I mean, there was, there was a lot going on in that room, but it was, it was a really moment for the ages.
0: Moment for the ages, um, just a forever impact. And so thank you. I mean, you've done a lot of public service, uh, but that, uh, you know, in particular, I don't think would have happened without you. And you're probably too modest to say that, but it's something that I believe. Um, at least not when it happened. Maybe it would have happened eventually. But you were a key part of of solving that. I want to now talk about your next role. So when you left uh, Legislative Affairs, you went to the Department of Defense and became its White House uh, liaison. And before I dig into the job itself, you got the opportunity to work for three secretaries of defense at that time, uh, Robert Gates. And then shortly after you arrived, Leon Panetta uh, came in. And I believe he was the secretary for most of your tenure at yeah. DOD, and then Chuck Hagel at the end. But I want to ask about Leon Panetta because I know you worked with him so closely and have such deep respect and affection for him. And he is a legend. So please talk to us about Leon Panetta and what it was like working for him.
1: Oh, a a, a true gift and a privilege. I mean, he, as you said, he's a historic figure. He, he's like you know, the Forrest Gump of the U.S. government. He's like, you know, lived all of these (laughs) incredible lives in so many different pivotal roles. So working for him was such a gift. Um, I got to know him a little bit when I was, I'd have to kind of brief the National Security Council principles on Guantanamo every now and then. And his sense of humor just immediately, I mean, he's a story figure and he's incredible, but his sense of humor about this just won me over. And so when I realized that he would be the successor to Secretary Gates, I really jumped at the chance to work for him in any capacity. And I I, I mean, I just cherish every single moment I was there. He's such a great leader. He was you know, the type of leader who knew all the things and had his finger on all the pulse of everything, but... Loved his staff and was so considerate of the staff. Took Secretary Gates' advice and would go home every day at six o'clock to make sure that people weren't staying there just to take care of him or wait on him. But by the same token, on foreign trips, you know, he would much rather hang out with the staff and get a beer than go to some, you know, fancy dinner in a most, you know, incredibly uh, fancy place. And that's still who he is to this day. We just It was a amazing family of people that I got to work with there. And Leon Panetta, the stories, just, oh, I loved the stories from him.
0: Yeah, he must he have more stories than he has time to tell. Um, yes. Let me, so, look, you worked in the Senate, in the House, in the White House, at DOD. I mean, you saw staffers across the government at the, you know, at the highest level and at the highest stakes, what in your mind makes a great staffer?
1: I think certainly a can-do attitude and a love of public service, you know, being there for the right reasons, not being there because of the job or the title or, you know, having it on your resume, but because you actually do want to make a difference. I I think you can see that and you can feel that from people. Um, I always say to people, being able to anticipate needs of your boss, your team, the institution. That's a big one for me. You know, when you're new to an organization, you you do have to watch and learn and take the temperature of what's going on around you. But the second you can start anticipating needs is when you can start driving value. And so being able to just, you know, provide the solution before there's a problem Um, Or identify the problem, but then immediately move to here's what I've done and here's the next step, I think. I I just think that's so important. And certainly listening, you know, more more than you talk, um, that's a big one as well.
0: Yeah. So the the role of the White House liaison, um, I'd like to hear you describe it. I know that it has it, it plays a central role in filling an agency with top quality political appointees. Um but it's but it's not just that. So can you talk about that role of the White House liaison?
1: Sure. I mean in some ways it was such an unlikely role for me because you know coming from the White House, that was such a policy heavy, a po- policy and politic heavy role um in White House Ledge Affairs. And when I was first approached at the by the White House as the as the white house liaison job. I was like, I don't really know what that is. That sounds like that's a personnel job. I don't I don't know that's for me. And so I kind of uh, declined it, you know, softly a couple times. Um, and and then I really started to take the time to understand what it is. And so at DOD, it's actually overseeing the at that time the 282 jobs that are political appointments. It was the largest in the federal government if you don't count some of the state appointments that AG um, has across the the nation. And so, you know, with from Senate confirmed, really all the way up to and including the deputy secretary on down, you don't get to pick the sec the president does, but, you know, the deputy secretary on down, you're managing that process and you're part of the three-legged stool of people selecting the, the political appointees, the president's appointees in those roles. So there's the hiring manager. In any role, you know, whether it's deputy secretary, citizen secretary, um, there's the White House P- Person- Presidents- presidential personnel office, PPO, and then there's the White House liaison. And all three need to agree in order for that to move forward. And so coming from White House Ledge Affairs, where you are negotiating and negotiating, you're trying to understand stakeholder values and deliverables, It's it's a, it actually prepared me well for that job because it was – anticipating issues that were gonna come up. It was a ton of negotiation. And it it also started this kind of the creative juices flowing about how to help diverse individuals um, find kind of, you know, the right job and, and find the right job for diverse individuals. And that was a it was a gift because that was a priority for that administration. And being able to really think about that and, you know, it's almost like like turning a Rubik's Cube. You're just kind of, you continue to try to figure out what's the right fit. And so solving those problems actually was very satisfying. And the way that Secretary Panetta structured it and, you know, was that it was more of a senior advisor role, too. So even some things that involved White House priorities um, I would kind of get to work on and be the interface back to the White House. So it, it it actually drew together a lot of my skills, but the new one was personnel. And I'm actually, I find that incredibly valuable in my life now.
0: Well, so let's get to your life now. Uh, and, and I want to uh, return to, at the end, about some work you're doing um, related to personnel on top of your, your job at BAE Systems. How did you find the transition from public sector, right, government life, to the private sector.
1: I, I mean, it's definitely strange and bumpy. You know, there's there's no way around it. I think when you're coming out of a, at, I'll just speak for my own experience, a defense-heavy policy life, you think surely there's there are no acronyms out there that I haven't heard or encountered or can't figure out. And then you enter, a, you know, a business operation, a, a business environment, and suddenly you, you're hearing things you've never heard in your life, and you feel like you're on another planet. And so I, you know, I often talk to people who are making that transition and I say about six months in, you know, your head is still hurting when you're getting new briefs because you're trying to decipher what they're saying. About a year in, you become conversant and 18 months in, you're kind of really starting to, uh, you know, fire on all cylinders. But it's such a process because the business world is very different and they have different priorities, but not necessarily, you know, wrong ones or those that, you um, don't complement the public service world, you know, well, you know, too. It, it's it's just, it's a, it was a great learning experience.
0: So you've been at the company now, um, I think coming up on 10 years. And yes. in 2021, you were elevated to senior vice president for government relations and made a member of the board of directors. As you think about um, filling your team at BAE Systems, and when you are looking at, you know, people who may be leaving government service. What are the types of things that you explore with them to see whether they might be good fits uh, for a company like yours?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that I've tried to keep true for our team, and I, I really think it's, it's our secret sauce, although plenty of others do it too, is that we hire almost exclusively right out of government. And so being able to understand my own process from going from government you know to the private sector and being able to help map out for them my expectations that are tailored to what I just you know explained in terms of how I anticipate the process and the timing taking um, I think that's been really helpful to building a strong team so in other words we bring a lot of retired military folks who are may have you know been war fighters who have you know been operators on our platforms or use some of our kit um, or have benefited from some of our you know, electronic warfare protections, and so being able to speak from that perspective, and then also understanding the acquisition world is absolutely key. And then folks from the Hill, it's you know having an interest in what we do. I mean, I love our company. I absolutely think the programs we work on are so diverse and so interesting. There is never a brief that I am bored in because I just I, I really enjoy learning about the. Just eons of things that we do um, as a as a fairly large company. So I think having that interest, it can't just be a job. It's got to be something you're excited and to get up because you're mission driven. And this still feels like you're serving the mission.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, I I, I described your title and, and your position on the board of directors, but you are very engaged in a number of things outside of your day job. There there are actually too numerous to mention, but there's there's at least one I want to ask you about. Um, current Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin asked you to serve as Chair of the DoD Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. Can you talk to us about that and you know what it does and what you're doing?
1: Sure. So speaking of acronyms, the the fun one for that is Dakowitz. And <laughs> Dakowitz is a uh, seventy two now year old committee that is absolutely historic. It has certainly been around one of the longest in DoD. But um, is really unique because it makes it, it, it provides advice on all issues affecting women serving in the military, um, regardless of rank, regardless of you know uh, service, and so uh, everything from recruitment, retention, well being, treatment, uh, integration, and employment, anything in those baskets, um, and. For for Dakowitz, they've made I think over a thousand recommendations to date, and ninety seven percent of those have actually become policy, either through a wow. legislative statutory channel or internally within the department. So I think you know that would it would stand. It's one of the most effective committees in the history of the Department of Defense. So I, I see that role as an honor and massive shoes to step into, since uh, my predecessor was a four star general. Um, in fact, the first wow. woman. To serve as a four-star general. So I I take it extremely seriously. But um, what a time to be able to to work in this space and help advance the amazing women who've already stepped up to serve and ensure that there are no structural barriers to their advancement.
0: Well, something that I really admire about you is um, your service, your ongoing service to an advisory board like that, But also, even before you were asked by the secretary to serve in that role, you were also the chair of the Leadership Council for Women in National Security, which is a nonprofit dedicated to making sure that women are brought into and can advance in the national security field. And that's something that nobody asked you to do. You know, a secretary of defense didn't ask you to do that, but that has been a priority of yours. So can you tell us a little bit about that organization?
1: Sure. So another acronym, uh, Leadership Council for Women in National Security or LC WINS. Uh, I'm actually still the chair, so I, <laughs> I consider it as I have three jobs right now. Um, but but you know, each of which has takes varying amounts of time, but I'll get my my sense of passion for the outcomes. You know, LC WINS was founded I was not a founder of LC WINS, but I joined shortly after it was stood up. And it's about three and a half years old. It was founded by six women. All diverse, uh, different backgrounds. Some, you know, DOD, some states, some, you know, kind of across the national security spectrum. Who were very tired of kind of being the only or one of a few women in the room, and at that time, not necessarily the women seated at the, the top of the table. Um, and so, looking around, they they said, "Enough! We got to figure out how. You know, what is it that is the impediment here?" And so the the desire to make a commitment to gender parity at the senior most ranks of the national security ecosystem is really the foundation for L.C. Wins. And so what we've done in the three and a half years since then is we've removed the most pernicious argument against why there aren't more women in these roles, which is a lack of supply. So L.C. Wins took the time to go out and find nearly 900 women ready to serve qualified in all kinds of different backgrounds that could potentially fill roles across the entire federal government in appointed, appointed, actually, and a career roles, because some of them were, were vying for ambassador roles, and giving them the kind of bespoke, you know, vetting and training needed, for example, um, private murder boards and understanding of the process, advice, support and just a network of people to draw from who've been in these roles, and what's really unique about us is that we're bipartisan. so you have Republican women helping democratic women and if it, you know if and when the tables are turned, vice versa and so that is is really what makes us different
0: you have i mean your career is so impressive, but one of the things that I just think makes it like over the top impressive is not just the roles that you've filled but you are currently active and actively engaged in expanding opportunity for other people's careers. And it's such a tribute to you and who you are that that has been not just like a sidecar. As you said, it's like a third job uh, that you are doing. Um, And it's just so impressive. So now that I've just paid you the highest compliment, um, I do have to ask you one of my recurring segments called In the Vault. Can you tell me about a time when you made a mistake what happened and what did you learn from it?
1: Absolutely, and in fact, this Into the Vault story is going to have a, a cameo role from none other than Jim Papa. Oh, no! <laughs> so, oh,
0: no! Oh,
1: on no. the very first day of our first day at the White House, as you recall, we signed all of our paperwork, we were shown to our office, we have no phones, no computer. Nothing to connect us to one another or even really how to get to the bathroom down the hall. Uh, It was very, very confusing. It was an honor to be there, but it's very confusing. And on that particular day, I was supposed to go up to the Hill that afternoon uh, with Dan Turton, our boss in order to be present when all of the committee chairs were gonna be briefed on the executive orders that President Obama had signed to close Guantanamo, related to the closure of Guantanamo. So Greg Craig, then the White House counsel, was set to come up and lead the briefing, and Dan and I would be the two White House Ledge Affairs people engaging with the the chairs and and, um, the chairs from the House and Senate side. So Dan said, great, I'll tell you you the details. I'm headed up to the Hill. I'm still settling into my desk. Hours start going by, I don't hear anything, I don't hear anything, and I realize I have no way to call Dan and figure out where this is. And so right. I, I am panicking, and I am going to anything I can find, a Gmail address, you know, phones that he might be standing near, and I finally learn, oh, that's going to be happening in an hour in Majority Leader Hoyer's office, and it's up on the Hill. And I think, oh, my gosh, I have to go. And as I recall, you had to go to the Hill around this time, too. And so we embark on the the great adventure of trying to navigate the Army Carpet Service, which is essentially the drivers who will safely take us from the White House to the the House. And we we can't figure it out. Again, we have no phones. No one knows who the heck we are. We're calling numbers. I think we finally go outside thinking maybe we can, like, find someone in the motor pool, like, who can just help us. And I think we end up going out to the front gate. And I said, I need I've got to, I've got to go. I'm just going to get a taxi. And you were like, you know what? I'm just going to go back in. I I can do this. Like, I I don't need to do this today. I was like, okay, I'm going to go hop in a a cab. And it is 25 degrees. Uh, It is the day after inauguration. It is icy, it is windy, it is cold. And fun fact, I was about three months pregnant at that time, which no one knew, but I knew. And I am like, all right, I can do this. I've got this, I'm gonna get a cab. And I cannot get a cab to save my life. I must've had a 100 full cabs of inauguration attendees who are departing Washington go by me. And I am panicked about failing on my very first assignment. And so I just start walking. I start walking. And I'm thinking I'll get a cab. I'll get a cab. I'll figure it out. I'm and I've got heels and a skirt on and it's 25 degrees and it's icy. And I'm walking and I walk the entire way up to the House Representative. <laughs> the briefing has started by now. I have missed it. I have failed. Oh. And I am just like I'm the saddest human in the, in the history of the world. <laughs> And the the ice block known as Shelly, like, finally <laughs> locates Leader Hoyer's office. And they're like, you can go in. And I literally can't move. I'm so cold. And so I decide, no, I'll just stay here and melt into a puddle. And rather than disrupt the briefing, like, you know, dear me, that was a massive fail. It was, a, it, was a, it was such a low, low moment. But what I learned from it... It was like the stick to it ness you know? It was like, a, I, I did fail, but I, I never gave up and I was committed to finding a solution no matter what it took. And there there's just something to be learned from that whole experience of anticipating needs, perhaps earlier next time, but the not giving up part was important that I didn't fail because I didn't try.
0: I remember how blown away we all were when we learned that you had walked in those temperatures and conditions and in those shoes from the White House to Capitol Hill. I mean, we thought we were meeting Lord Shackleton. Uh, I mean, like, it was unbelievable that you did that. And it just, it really does. I love it because it captures who you are. Like, there is no stopping you. I love that story. Um, Okay, I know we are almost out of time, but I have to ask you my final question. If I were able to build my dream Staffer Hall of Fame... Who would you nominate for inclusion and why?
1: So I don't know if I'm allowed to nominate present company, but you would definitely be on my list, Jim. And you I mean that kind. sincerely. Thank you.
0: Well, but them, I, I will. I, I build the thing. I, I'm, so I, know, I'm I know. You build I'm... it. So
1: that's fine. You'll, you'll have a plaque. Um, so <laughs> the person right. I want to nominate is actually Jeremy Bash, who was my, who was our chief of staff uh, when I worked for Leon Panetta and is truly just one of the best humans and best people I could work for, with, um, in any respect, I've just he's such a, a genuine human who celebrates other people's wins, is the definition of inclusive and just really living his values. I've just I've I felt very privileged to to work ha- be on his team and I learned so much from him.
0: Such a phenomenal nominee. Everyone I know who has been in his circle feels like you do. Um, I, there have been times when I've been able to be, you know, in meetings with him or in, interact with him. He is so impressive. you know, his his knowledge, his 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 manner, his, his you know, engaging with other people. um absolutely. He's in. We'll begin working <laughs> on on the bronze bust. Um, Shelley Stoneman, I can't thank you enough. I have loved this conversation. Like I love all of our conversations. You are someone truly like staffer par excellence. People I know do look up to you. I really hope people enjoy this episode as much as I have. So thank you.
1: Thank you for having me, Jen. This has been so much fun. I appreciate it very much.
0: Anytime. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.